0: Church, as we continue to worship this morning, I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word, turn with me to the book of Exodus this morning, specifically Exodus chapter 19, that's where we're going to be in the book of Exodus for the coming weeks and months ahead. This last spring, we walked through Exodus chapter 1 through 18, we pick up with chapter 19, and we'll walk through the Ten Commandments this spring together as a church family, and next spring we'll pick up with the rest of the law of God and the tabernacle. And so in the course of three years, we'll walk through the book of Exodus as a faith family. We start with a study in the Ten Commandments today. We will be at the bottom of the mountain, that being Mount Sinai. We will not go to the top and here. We'll be in that preparatory stage this morning in Exodus chapter 19, asking why the Ten Commandments? What's the purpose of the Ten Commandments? Commandments? How do we differentiate between uh, God giving them to the Israelites and his word to us to follow as followers of him as the church today? There was a time in our culture where the Ten Commandments were sort of ubiquitous. I mean, they were they were the wallpaper of a lot of, of what we experienced as citizens of America. I'm going back decades and decades and decades ago. There, there was a time I think we were pretty familiar in the sense of being able to to list the Ten Commandments. I'm pretty sure that's not the case now, but I do think that outside of the 23rd Psalm and the Lord's Prayer, there is a cultural memory to the importance of the Ten Commandments that still resonates with many people. Now, if you were to be asked to list all of the Ten Commandments in order, I would imagine that that many of us would maybe miss some or miss a lot I heard of a rather odd survey from about 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I always want to meet the people that come up with these kinds of surveys, but the premise was pretty simple. Uh, They asked 3,000, 4,000 average Joe Americans to be able to list the Ten Commandments in order and then to be able to list the seven ingredients to a McDonald's Big Mac And you see, I I had to look up, it it has been a long time (laughs) since I've had a Big Mac, but in case you were sitting in the pews and you just were wondering, you have two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun, and so you kind of see where this is going when they polled the respondents, surprise, surprise, that the majority could come up with the ingredients of uh, of the Big Mac before they could come up with the Ten Commandments. 80% of the respondents knew that there were two all-beef patties, but only 60%, the the largest number that could come up with one of the Ten Commandments, was 60% could come up with do not kill. 45% could come up with honor your father and mother. 34%, remember the Sabbath day, 29%, uh, do not make for yourself an idol. Now listen, the, the point of this is not that in the course of the spring that we'll be able to list all the Ten Commandments in order, uh, but, but rather that we'll live these out? Now, I mean, you can't live out what you don't know. So there is an importance to internalizing the Word of God. There is an importance to knowing the Word of God, memorizing the Word of God, hiding the Word of God in our hearts so that we may not sin against Him. But there is something to be able to list them. There's a whole other thing to be able to live them out in our daily lives. And, and what do these staples of, of the society that we know as the nation of Israel, this influence much of, of all societies since then, what, what does this mean for us as followers of Christ? And how do we live this out? And to answer that question, we jump not into the first commandment, but rather, we say at the, the bottom of the mountain in Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 1, we read on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, and on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Where were they? They were in the wilderness of Sinai. Verse 2, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai. Again, the repetition the wilderness of Sinai. They encamped in the wilderness. Their Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. You're tracking along with the journey of the Israelites. You put a GPS upon them. They've come out of Egyptian captivity. They're about three months into their journey of newfound freedom into the wilderness. They find themselves in the, the wilderness of Sinai. Exactly where? Well, that's an important question. It's a full circle moment for their leader, Moses. It's easy for us to forget this, but in Exodus chapter 3, this is the place where God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. You have this sort of deja vu kind of moments, this full circle kind of moments. Maybe it was over the holidays and it's been years and years, decades maybe, since you went and drove by the, the, your home place, the place that you grew up in. And it was just something about worlds colliding when you saw that, that house. Or maybe it's a, a reunion of college or high school and you get to see people you haven't seen in a long time. This was that for Moses. I mean, being at the, at the bottom of this mountain, brought back, I am sure, the words of God from the burning bush. We, we have them recorded for us in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. He, being God, said, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, this mountain right here. So when God appeared to Moses and said, I know you got some other things you want to be doing here, but I'm going to send you back to Pharaoh, and you're going to say to Pharaoh in a very bold way, let my people go. And Moses had a a lot of different excuses why he was not the man. And God said to him, I'm going to be with you. And, And I'm not calling you based upon your own strength, but I'm going to equip you. And even in your insecurity, I'm going to bring you to this place. And guess what? One sign is I'm going to keep my word. And so where I am where giving you this message, I'm going to bring you back. And so you can imagine Moses kind of uh, looking over to Aaron when they come back to that mountain. And he says, hey, this is where it all started. Aaron, did I ever tell you that time I was tending the sheep and God spoke to me out of a burning bush here? This is how it all started. And there he was in that full circle moment. Now, where was he exactly? There's no reason for us to belabor this. But there's a lot of speculation in regard to the actual site of Mount Sinai. And can you, can you know with 100% certainty? Can you, can you get on a plane and, and, and uh, come to the, the summit of Mount Sinai and, and stand exactly where Moses stood? I mean, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? That, that would be captivating, would it not? Can you do that for certain? And the answer to that is yes and no. The no of that answer is is that there's not a consensus exactly what that mountain and where that mountain exactly is. You have Galatians 4, 25, where Paul talks about the Mount Sinai of Arabia. You have many scholars that put it in the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula, which would be Kadesh Barnea, most traditionally south. I mean, if you Google tour Mount Sinai, you're going to find an 8,000-foot peak there that in four to five hours you can come to the top of. uh, St. Catherine's Monastery is there, 6th century, 7th century monastery. And so that's that's where the traditional site is. But when you got there, there there are these tours where you can go about 1 o'clock in the morning and you can see the sun rise. And when you see this breathtaking view It would be pretty amazing, there's no doubt. But can we know with 100% certainty that's exactly where Moses stood exactly thousands of years ago? And the answer to that is no. Should should that worry us? The answer is no. God God gives us in His Word everything that we need for faith in Him and to follow Him, But, but He doesn't. And His sovereign will give us everything that we might be curious about knowing. So, so there's some things in Scripture that he has just not given us clarity on, and this is one of these things. The where exactly is not as important as the what and the why of the Ten Commandments. So, so we don't have to spend a whole lot of time in endless speculation about which mountain peak this is going to be here, but rather we, we stand as a congregation at the foot of this mountain in Exodus chapter 19, and, and we hear Moses going up to be addressed by God. This is going to happen three times in Exodus 19. Seven times between Exodus 19 and the end of the book of Exodus, you have this going up, coming down, going up, coming down. He is a mediator between the people of God and God, the holy God who would speak. And what does God say? It's interesting, the first words that God speaks to Moses are found in verse 3. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I've done or what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. First words are important. First words that Moses receives as God has brought them out of Egyptian captivity, He's parted the Red Seas, brought them into the wilderness, there at the Mountain of God. The first thing that He says is the basis of the gracious work of God. You to see that. If you if you miss this distinction you will misunderstand everything that we're going to be talking about. Maybe not everything, but you're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to be misled about the very purpose of the Ten Commandments in the weeks and months ahead. The first thing that Moses hears from God isn't, here's everything that you need to do to be set free, to be my people. These are all the things that you need to keep. No, what does God say to Moses? Hey, you remember when? You, you remember when I bore you on eagle's wings? You remember what I did for you in Egypt? I know it was just a few months ago. But the people of God are complaining in the, in the wilderness. They're, they're saying, hey, Moses, we, we really got to eat really well. There were great buffet lines back there in Egypt. And God is saying to Moses, remind them. Remind them of my grace that set them free. Notice the order. Notice the order that he sets his people free, then he gives them the Ten Commandments. He sets them free through his grace, then he gives them the law. He could have said, back in Exodus chapter 3, let's rewind the tape, let's go back to that mountain when God appears to Moses in the burning bush. He could have said, hey Moses, okay, I've got a plan for the people. And this is the plan. I've got Ten Commandments, and I need you to go back to the people in Egyptian captivity, and I need you to tell them to have no other gods except for me, no other idols, no other idols. I need you to tell them to honor their father and mother. I need you to tell them to not kill. I need you to tell them. And he could go so forth through the Ten Commandments and say, at the end of the day, give me six months, a year. I'm going to watch. I'm going to come back to you. And if there's more obedience than disobedience, then I'm going to break the shackles of Pharaoh. I'm going to break the shackles of Egypt. He doesn't do that, does he? Rather, he sets his people free based upon his gracious love for them. The freedom from God then precedes the law of God. Another way we could say that is the grace of God precedes the law of God. Really important. Because I think many of us, we have a home base. We we have a channel of our heart that our heart always goes back to. You know what I'm talking about here when I I mentioned a channel of our heart. Many of you maybe traveled and maybe you traveled to a hotel these last few weeks and you stayed in the hotel, you cut on the television and what the hotel has has a hotel channel, it's the home channel. And maybe there's a football game that you wanted to see a little bit of and so you found ESPN and you go through the channels and then you cut the television off and then you cut the television back on and does it go back to ESPN? No, it doesn't. It goes back to that home channel. And that home channel tells you all the amenities of the hotel. It tells you all the places in that city that you could go to that that, uh, would be a wonderful restaurant to go, wonderful activities for your family. And when you cut the television back on, it goes to that home channel. You cut it back off and cut it back on. It goes to that home channel. And we have a default channel of our human heart. It is a works-based channel. Our human instinct is to say we really need to do something to earn the love of God. If we're going to be saved by God, we need to do our part. And if we meet God in the middle, then he will set us free from our sins. The Marines had a a, a motto years ago, which was entirely appropriate for that branch of the military, but it can be deadly if we accept it as the motto of Christian life, which is always earned, never given. Always earned, never given. And there's some of you That the default channel of your human heart is saying, God, I want you to really like me. I want you to save me. What do I need to do to meet you in the middle? Could you imagine God coming to the Israelites in Exodus 1-18 through and saying, Hey Moses, I'm going to set you free from Egyptian bondage. I need you to get the strongest men and I need you to storm the palace. I need you to rile them up. I need you to give them an inspirational speech. I need you to, to, to stand before them and say, uh, men, what are we going to do without our freedom here? And then you could storm Pharaoh. That's not what he does. He could have said to Moses, I need all of the Israelites to meet me at the Nile River. I need you to prick your finger. And at the count of three, I need everyone to stick their hand into the Nile River. We're going to get Pharaoh's attention. We're going to turn it into blood and I need your help. But that's not what he does. The freedom that the Israelites receive is solely upon the grace and the mercy of a powerful God that all the earth is his. And your freedom from the bondage of your Pharaoh, your freedom from the bondage of sin, comes not by you meeting God halfway, doing your part and he does his part. It isn't by, by you saying, hey God, what do I need to do to defeat sin, to defeat Satan, to defeat the bondage that I'm held in? No, it is faith alone. In Christ alone, he has paid it all. Jesus Christ, who has lived a life that we could not live, a perfect life. And he died a death that we deserve, a sacrificial death. And it's through his love and his mercy that we are set free. Now, while we are not saved by our works, we are saved to do good works. And this is the distinction. This is the now, There for, The Ten Commandments come Not so we can come to the end of our life and have a scale where most of the time we've kept the Ten Commandments. And if we've done more than not, that God would look at us and say, I'm going to call them to heaven. I'm going to call them to forgiveness. No, we are freed people. Empowered by the gospel. And this is the power of the gospel that when we accept his forgiveness and follow him, then he empowers us and calls us to live holy and distinct lives. Notice here, not only the basis of the gracious work of God, but notice the purpose of the gracious work. As freed people, God calls his people to work. He calls them to live holy and distinct lives. Notice the transition in verse 5. Now, therefore, since I've set you free, Since you're out of Egypt, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Now, they're already set free. But God has a purpose for them. He has a plan for them. And their obedience matters. Their holiness matters to this plan that he has. For all the earth is mine, he says. Verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The purpose for the people of God, now they're out of Egypt, is, is defined in verse 5 and defined in verse 6. There's two phrases here that I don't want you to miss. One is in verse 5, treasured possession. Meditate upon that word for a second. The whole earth is God's, but He has set His eye, His love upon these people, this nation of Israel, and He's called them forth. And he wants to show them off. Why? To show all the world, to show Egypt, but to show all the world that there's only one God, and this one God can, can break the strongest of kingdoms in that ancient Near Eastern world. That there is no lowercase gods that can compete with the one God. This is a powerful witness. God is showing off his treasured possession in the rest of the Old Testament. You'll see this phrase. And it's a phrase that has this connotation of a king's private treasury. The, the things that he loves the dearest. Now, it's not a vain art collector who, who just has this collection to be able to kind of hoard to herself or himself and to, to have just a few choice friends to be over, to come and to, to show off wealth and to show off what, what is privilege and what you have that no one else has. All of, No, 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 no. That's not what God is doing. God's public proclamation of Israel is to be seen by all the world. It's not just to be hoarded so just a few people see it. No, the whole world is going to get to see this. Now, how in the world is that going to happen? Well, again, look at verse 6. They're chosen to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God chooses Israel in the Old Testament to have a unique vocation, a unique opportunity, a unique job description to worship God and to serve God. And to love God and to honor God and to live in a holy. Holy isn't a, a sanctimonious word. It just, frankly, means set apart. So the nation of Israel was set apart by God's grace and God's love. And they were to live as a kingdom of priests. This, this echoes back to Genesis chapter 12. Remember that story where God says to Abram, I, I want you to leave what is known to you, And I want you to go to the land that I will show you. And I, the irony of all ironies, uh, Abraham and Sarah, they can't have children. And God says, look up at the stars. And you can't count the stars. They're innumerable to be able to count. But I'm going to make your descendants uh, like the multitude of the stars. And he does that. And, and, And all of these people, the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, they end up there in Egypt and they become too numerous. They become a political threat to to the Pharaoh of that time. So he's got to buckle them under his weight and in his power. He's got to show them who is boss. So God has kept his promise. They're way too numerous. And God keeps his promise by by setting them free. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he says to Abram, I'm not just giving you a nation just so you can be the great, 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 great grandparents of this holy nation. No, no, no. I'm giving you this nation so that this nation would be a blessing to all the nations. Well, how in the world is this going to happen? Well, we're seeing it come to fruition right here before our eyes in the book of Exodus. As God keeps his promise and he sets them free. And if you're in a pew, you're a part of this story. If you've accepted Christ as your savior, you are a part of this story. Because out of Israel comes the true Israel, Jesus Christ, who lived that perfect life. And through him, we're able. We're able to be sons and daughters of Abraham. We're able to be a part of this family, not of the Israelites, but of the new Israel, the holy church. And we are able to serve him. We're able to love him. We're able to worship him. We have, we have a vocation. We have a calling. Well, what is that, David? How is that distinct from the nation of Israel? Well, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, he gives us a job description. And notice, I mean, he, he is just echoing Exodus chapter 19 with what you see on the screen here. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Is he talking about the nation of Israel? No. He's talking about the church, the bride of Christ. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about this church and every church that centers on the gospel and spreads the good news of the gospel We are called to be a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There is nothing more debilitating that when you have a position, you have a job, and you don't have a clear sense of what the expectations are for that job. I Many can come in a variety of ways. But when you have a position and you have a job, and maybe it's intentional, maybe oftentimes it's unintentional, But there's a lot of assumptions made and there's not a clarity on exactly what you're supposed to be and supposed to do to succeed and to thrive in that role. And I just want you to know, if you're a follower of Jesus, your job description is clear. Your purpose is clear. Go back here to 1 Peter chapter 2. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are called to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, to point people to Jesus through our words and through our actions. A while back, there was a sociologist uh, historian also who Rodney Stark is his name and he has written two books that are really helpful books: The Triumph of Christianity and the Rise of Christianity. And in those books, he he talks about how Christianity spread, especially in that antagonistic period of third and fourth century Roman Empire. And he tells a story about how the church got noticed. Did they get noticed through their boycotting of of the worship of Caesar? Did they get noticed? through uh, their pretentiousness and and their uh, false piety this is how they got noticed they got noticed because there was a major sickness that that spread throughout the empire and the way that the christians cared for those in their family and outside of their family was wholly distinct poverty abounded in that climate and in that culture and the Christians, they, people took note of them because of the ways that they cared for the poor and they cared for the sick. Many ministers, many Christians throughout the ages went through martyrdom, not a martyrdom of being crucified, but a martyrdom of coming into so close contact with sickness that, that, that they didn't push themselves away for it. And they, they cared for those in their family and outside of their family. And people, they stopped and they took notice. Even the highest of the land. Stark tells the story of a 4th century Roman emperor by the name of Julian of the Apostate. And Julian, he he tells the story of how he just doesn't like these Christians. They just get on his nerves. But he cannot deny that there's something different about them. He says this. He's going to say Galileans, which is just a shorthand for this emperor, for Christians. These impious Galileans, he says, not only feed their own poor I get that, how they'll take care of themselves, but Julian the Apostate says, but ours also. They don't only feed their own poor, but ours also. While the pagan priests, they neglect the poor, the hated Galileans, the hated Christians, they devote themselves to works of charity. Do you see what's occurring here? The highest position of the land looks at the church and says, boy, there is just something different about them, and the difference was seen in the way they treated others. It was seen in their love, their joy, their peace, and their kindness. And their self-control and their faithfulness and the fruit of the Spirit that showed forth from them. And and each time these Christians would would act in such a way as they rubbed against the shoulders of those that did not know Christ, uh, people stopped and they took notice. It was almost as if these Christians were just giving them a little sampling. A little sampling what the kingdom of God looks like right here on earth. I don't know how many of you... uh, spend any time growing up going to Baskin Robbins. That, that, that was always a highlight where I grew up. I don't see those as many, but that was the ice cream place to go to. You had the 50 flavors or whatever, however many flavors that they had. And what I loved about it is you could go to a Baskin Robbins and it was, a, it was a part of sort of the job description of the person giving the ice cream that you could get those little pink, little sample spoon. And if you're really sort of brave. And maybe brazen. And a little sarcastic. You could could just stand there and say. Yeah I'd like a little sample of that. And I'd like a little sample of that. And I'd like a little sample of that. And I'd like a little sample of that. But it was a part of the experience. To be able to get a little sample. So that you could get a little taste of that flavor. Get a little taste of that flavor. And it would entice you. But just the little sample would entice you. To to eat more. To be able to to purchase some. And to, to leave with the full experience. I want you to know. That you're that little pink spoon. If you're a follower of Christ, you are a kingdom. A priest, a holy nation set apart to be able to, to show people through your words and through your actions. Just a sample of what the kingdom of God looks like in your life. In your work. In your speech. In who you are. And When people rub up against you, there's just something different about you. There's something different about the way that you go through difficulties and tragedies. There's something different about the way that you experience the, the joys of life and the lowest parts of life. You as a Christian are called to be distinct, a, a holy nation set apart. Do you remember years ago, there was this sort of mind teaser, that was called Where's Waldo? And if you remember this, Where's Waldo had, had one character that had this candy cane type of apparel and the hat and the red and white shirt, and you would look at these very busy scenes, of a circus or a beach scene, and you have all of these things going on in the scene, but you would want to look really, really hard to be able to find the one person that stood out. But this was the whole premise of where's Waldo. Although he stood out, he was hard to find. You would look, and you would look, and it would take, it would take five minutes, maybe it would take 10 minutes, maybe it would take 20 minutes. Maybe you would come away from that and say, I can't find where Waldo is in this scene. Maybe he's not here. I, I do fear that some of us as Christians live, where is Waldo lives? Wanting to blend into the background. Wanting to go with the flow of the crowd. To not stand out. To not be set apart. So maybe people won't see us. And God says, I have redeemed you. I have set you free to live a holy and distinct life so that when people rub up against you, they say, I've just gotten a sample, but I need to know where you got that from. I didn't get the full taste. I want a little bit more. What has happened in your life? May people see our good works and pat us on the back. No. May they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. May it be so in all of our lives. Let us pray.